All right, everybody. Thank you so much uh, for coming and for greeting one another. It is great being with you. Uh, also, a, uh, a huge thanks to those who are watching on the live stream tonight at this service. We don't usually live stream this one, but it went down at 4 o'clock. So if you made it here uh, to the 6 o'clock, well, then congratulations. You're good at the Internet, and we're glad that you made it uh, on a night when we weren't. Uh, but welcome. You know, um, I just was out of town for a few weeks. I was, not a few weeks, a few days. I was up in Tahoe with my family. Uh, a great trip. I had such a wonderful time doing Thanksgiving there. When I got back, I decided I had to work through all of the emails that I had been kind of neglecting and putting off. And I found a few that had been really stuck from all the way back, uh, months back, and started working through them. One of them that I found was an announcement by the Hallmark Channel announcing their full holiday slate of movies for 2021. This is big news, big news, big news. Uh, I personally am excited about three that I've noticed here uh, that are coming this year. Uh, the first one is You, Me, and the Christmas Tree. Love it. Uh, Nantucket Noel is another one I'm excited about. But really, I'm really holding out for uh, the Boyfriends of Christmas Past. These three seem like they're going to stand out from amongst the rest, so excited to look at this. But here's what I noticed about this email. It was sent to me on September 19th. September 19th. That's like two weeks after Labor Day. Two weeks after Labor Day, when we're still in the middle of summer, when it's 85 degrees out, it's still 85 degrees out, I guess. But while we're still eating watermelon, while it's still, we have summer on the mind, when it's still bikini weather, they are announcing the Christmas movies that they're releasing that year. And it's not just that. One of the things that I noticed was on October 20th this year, at Home Depot, they brought out their Christmas decorations. That meant for 11 days they had reindeers and snowmen right alongside inflatable skulls and Frankenstein coexisting where you could buy both of your holiday decorations right there at the same time. And, and it's not just there. The, the day after Halloween, uh, the day after the Harvest Festival, uh, Hunter came into the office playing All I Want from Christmas is You by Mariah Carey. He was already in the mindset that it was Christmas time on November 1st. And here's the craziest thing to me. From November 1st until January 1st, All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey is played one million times a day on Spotify. That everybody is already ready for Christmas by the time we hit November 1st. So there's a phenomenon that describes this entire thing. It's called Christmas creep. It is that every year our celebration of Christmas slowly moves a little bit earlier until eventually it's going to be fireworks and snowmen all happening at the same time. That is ultimately where we're heading. And so if you hit, by the time we hit November 1st, it is a full sprint towards Christmas. One of the things I've become convinced of is uh, we're not just running towards something in Christmas. I really come to believe that we are also running from something. We're not just running towards Christmas. We're also running from something that gets us towards Christmas even quicker. Just, just think about the last month and kind of some of the things that have happened just in our country, in and around us. Last week, uh, we watched two very important trials come to conviction uh, with Kyle Rittenhouse, who was acquitted, and for the murders of Ahmed Asbury, who uh, were convicted of uh, killing him which took up the headlines across the entire week and probably brought emotional responses across the spectrum to both of those things. 
uh, every day. Um, you and I, I'm sure, uh, I know that I am, are juggling the complexities of vaccine mandates and also vaccine hesitancy and how that plays out in relationships, in work, in church, in family. Uh, I went on to 538, which is a statistics website, uh, last week because uh, I wanted to check some of the data, and I saw that uh, President Biden's approval rating is currently around, I think, 39%, they say. When Trump less left office, it was about 38%, which means basically for the last two, three years, two-thirds of the country have been unhappy with their president, regardless of who that person has been. We have a new COVID variant called Omicron. Uh, gas is currently $5 a gallon, and Adele came out with a new album, which was supposed to be awesome, but it's all about her divorce, which is not awesome. I mean, read the room, Adele. We need good news. This is not the album that we wanted. We wanted Adele's version of All I Wanted for Christmas is You. That's what she was supposed to do. Instead, we got the world's saddest album ever made. Now, these are just the national stories. I'm willing to bet in your life there's things of sadness and sorrow, and pain, and in difficulty that has come to kind of define the past few weeks of challenges and relationships in your own health, uh, in your own family, that are things that are slowly stealing your joy and are becoming challenges in this time, and they're shaking your world in ways that I can't possibly know here from the stage. So I think one of the things that's happening is we are running towards Christmas, because we're trying to run away from all of the complexities and pain in our life. It's as if our hope is that Christmas memories and Christmas tradition can drown out the sadness that we're experiencing. That the smells and the tastes of Christmas, the peppermint mochas and, and the scented candles, and all of these things can somehow carry us through the chaos that we're living in. We want to step out of our world and the struggles and pain that's associated with it, and we want to step into the world of the snow globe, where although it might get turned over, eventually it all just becomes a gentle, nostalgic snow around us. We want Hallmark movies because they have happy endings. And oftentimes in life, we just don't get happy endings. The endings that we get are complex. They're unique, they're full of challenges, they bring new challenges along with them. And so something simple and something direct that we know is going to be happy, there's a reason why there's 44 of them that are being released this year. And it, not surprisingly, all of these ways of coping with pain, it, it actually kind of works. It actually kind of helps to step into the magic of Christmas and celebrate it. There's a reason why we decorate the sanctuary like this. It helps us feel good. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a very shallow hope when you put it into those things. Uh, they say that the average American is going to spend $247 on Christmas decorations this year to help them feel the feelings of it. They say the average American is going to spend over $1,000 on Christmas gifts this year so you could spend your way out of kind of the complexities and pain of life. In fact, one of the things I saw was that the holiday candle business will do $1 billion of profit across the next 30 days. That is insane so it can just smell like Christmas. You see, it gives us something. It helps us feel good about the life that we're living. We are manufacturing hope. But manufactured hope isn't always that effective. It isn't always that lasting, and it certainly is expensive. Pastor Fleming Rutledge, 
who is a, um, an Episcopalian priest, actually, uh, she wrote this incredible book on Advent, and she says this, that the Advent season, it is not for the faint of heart, that to celebrate Advent takes courage. The reason why, she says, is because we, before we can celebrate the birth of Christ, we first, we first have to remember why he needed to come at all. That's because without Christmas, without the coming of Jesus Christ, we are hopeless. And there's no amount of decorations that can utterly drown out that hopelessness. And so in a way, she says that Advent, it begins in the dark. It begins with looking at the darkness of the world around us, and it even begins with looking at the darkness that happens inside of us. She says that before you can sing, oh, joy to the world, you have to sing, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And be reminded again that there is a reason why Jesus must come. Now, here's the problem. We don't want to look into the dark. We don't want to take a look at the pain in the world. We don't want to deal with these kinds of things. That's not the Christmas that we want. But in fact, I think it's the Christmas that we need. My fear is this, is that the more that we live in nostalgia and the more that we live in tradition and the more that we live into holiday cookies, it leaves us with a shallower version of Christmas. That in fact, that all that we get are the decorations, but we miss out on what Jesus Christ truly has to give, which is hope that is born out of the intense pain and suffering of this world. As a new church, we get to choose how we want to celebrate Advent. And for us this year, we're celebrating a more traditional kind of uh, association of the candles. Uh, If you were a part of us in our last ministry context, it was the prophecy, the Bethlehem, the angel, and the shepherd candle, uh, which served us really well. But as we've looked at church tradition, there's four virtues which are more naturally associated with Christmas. It's hope, love, joy, and peace with the Christ candle there in the middle. And tonight we are looking at hope. You know, part about what we want in hope is to look at what is our hope truly grounded in? What is our hope really about? We're going to be in the book of Lamentations tonight, which is a passage which never gets preached here on Christmas. But there is something in it that has grabbed me because it is a dark and gritty book that deals really with suffering and pain. And at the same time, it's a poem. In fact, all of chapter 3 where we're going to be tonight is an acrostic poem, meaning every verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So beauty and pain mixed together as they look for a place to try to find hope in this life. And what is really beautiful is that the more they dig into the suffering of the world, the more they find the presence of God that is there. And it's that spirit that I hope that as we tap into the passage tonight, we will see a hope that is only for us here today, but helps us understand exactly what Christmas is all about. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Lamentations chapter 3. It's in the Old Testament. It comes after Isaiah, after Jeremiah, and it's going to come before the, all the minor prophets. So if you run into someone's name that you don't know, go left. Uh, that's where you need to head. So Lamentations chapter 3. Would you stand with me? I'm going to read it for us. We're going to pick it up in Lamentations 3, verse 13. Uh, This is the author, likely Jeremiah, the prophet, and he's speaking about Yahweh, the God of Israel. Lamentations 3, 13. He has pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. 
I've become the laughingstock of all of my people. They mock me in song all day long. And he has filled me with bitter herbs, and he has given me gall to drink. He has broken my teeth with gravel, and he has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace, and I have forgotten what prosperity is. And so I say, my splendor is gone, and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions, they never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, and therefore I will wait for him. Because the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray. Lord, um, with a, a passage like this, when you go to Lamentations, Lord, <laughs> it's easy to take people to the bottom, but it's hard to kind of bring them back up to the top. And Lord, tonight I want to ask you to help us to push past the tradition of Christmas, to look at the very reason why you had to come. And Lord, in that, Help us to reckon with the suffering that we've brought into this world and also the hope that we have in you. We love you. Would you be with us and would you teach us tonight, Lord? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So Lamentations is by far the saddest book that appears in the Old Testament. It is by far the saddest book in the entire Bible. It's probably the saddest book ever written that isn't written by Cormac McCarthy. It is an incredibly sad and depressing book. Uh, a quick recap for you about what's happening in this book. Uh, so Israel exists in what's called a covenant relationship with God, meaning that God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, has pledged himself to the people of Israel, and the people of Israel have pledged themselves to Yahweh, so they both exist in this mutual commitment to one another. When they both hold to this commitment, God says that he's going to bless and protect Israel and help them to prosper, help them to grow. In fact, his entire plan is to pour so many blessings upon Israel that the nations will look at them and be in awe of God's love, and they will come to worship Yahweh because of seeing how good he is to his followers. That's the entire plan. But Israel, they grow tired of Yahweh, and they begin following the other gods from the nations around them. Uh, God gives them a warning and says, you have to come back to me. And Israel just absolutely refuses to. And so God sends prophets to them, and we have a ton of prophets here in the Bible who give them warnings about what's going to happen if they don't, and they kill the prophets. And so eventually Yahweh says, you have now broken the covenant, and now I'm withholding my blessing. And when that happens, the enemies of Israel come quick. Uh, in the book of the Old Testament, and the entire thing, one of the most uh, prominent stories that happens is Babylon, the nation, comes in and defeats Israel. Now, now here's the thing. Israel as a nation falls really quickly to Babylon. They're quickly defeated. But Jerusalem, the city, it falls very slowly. Let me say that again. Israel as a nation falls quickly, but Jerusalem falls slowly. And instead of Babylon trying to scale the walls and trying to break into a heavily fortified city, they simply surround it with their army, and they decide to starve Israel out. And they do. The people of Jerusalem starve to death in the city. Eventually, when the people give up, they open up the gates, Babylon comes in, and they slaughter 
everybody that is left. Lamentations is written from the inside of Jerusalem. It's written from the center of the slaughter. It's filled with immense pain. In fact, there are verses in the book of Lamentations that I will probably never preach because I have no idea how you can talk about the sadness that's in the verses and pull people out of it. It's incredibly serious, incredibly heavy. The authors of the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah, Here's what's unique about the way he writes. He knows that Israel has no one to blame for their struggles except themselves. This is out of 114, Lamentations 114. I didn't read this, but we'll put it up here on the screen. It says this. My sins, they have been bound into a yoke by his hands. They were woven together. They have been hung on my neck, and the Lord has sapped my strength. Now, sometimes we, we hear the phrase, why do bad things happen to good people? That is not what the people are saying here. They are not that naive. They do not believe that they are good people. In fact, they know that they have done wrong by the Lord. They know that they have violated his commands. There are two big books on suffering in the Old Testament. Job which is asking the question, why do the righteous suffer? And Lamentations, which is talking to people who deserve to suffer for their sins. That's these people. They know that God is bringing on them a consequence that they deserve. What is fascinating is that it doesn't say that God brings his wrath upon them. What it says that he does is that he takes their own sin and he binds them into a wreath, into like a yoke, and he places their own sin upon them. They're punished with themselves. That they receive exactly what they deserve. They get the full consequences of all of their actions. And once he gives them the consequence of their actions, once he gives them back their own sin, they completely collapse underneath it. So the offer... The author offers their own suffering, and they speak about it so that you and I could see it. And they, what they want is for us to see that what happens to people when they sin and the suffering that it causes. Look at 118. He says this, The Lord is righteous, and yet I rebelled against his command. Listen, all of you people, look on my suffering. My young men and young women have gone into exile. They know that God is righteous, even as they suffer, and that the suffering that they're experiencing is deserved, it is just, it is good, and that God's holiness is still intact, even as he punishes them. This is important, because a lot of times when we think about suffering, we, try, we think of suffering as being this kind of random occurrence, this random thing that happens to us, but it, it's not. All suffering that happens to you or I or in this world is the result of our sin or someone else's sin. All suffering that we experience here in this world, it is the end result of our sin or someone else's sin. The tsunamis that hit and the famines that wipe out countries, the plagues that we are currently living under, uh, poverty, systemic poverty and disease, all of these things come from a world that is broken by sin. And the pain that you're currently living with is likely a consequence of the decisions you've made or that somebody else has made. When you lied, when she cheated, when he left, when they stole, when you were abandoned, 
These things all are the result of what we've done or what other people have done for us. And so sin is ultimately always the cause of all of our suffering. And what's painful about that is the Bible also teaches that you and I can't stop sinning. It's habitual. We are addicted to sin, which means that you and I also can't stop suffering. We can't stop sinning, and so we don't stop suffering. And as a result, our hope is slowly strangled by pain. This is why verse 18 says this, My splendor, it's gone, and all that I'd hoped for from the Lord. He says, if there was anything good in my life, it is gone due to suffering and sin. And there is nothing for me in the future due to suffering and sin. Now what Advent asks for us to do is to look right into the dark. To look right into our situation and face it. Because our situation due to sin and suffering is desperate. And what Christmas offers us is a new kind of hope. And it's not a hope that is based on what you can do or on what someone else can do by whatever blind luck might come your way, whatever talents you have or whatever job opportunities might be there in the future or any sort of medicine that might be able to treat your symptoms. Our hope is not placed in those things, but it asks us to put our hope into the character and the actions and the goodness of God. When you look at the book of Lamentations as it moves forward in three, there's this unique pivot that starts to happen because they say, I am completely hopeless, and then they begin to hope. They say, there's no reason for me to hope. Nothing good can, come, good can come out of my life, and yet they keep coming back to hope. Why is that? Part of it is the way that the Bible talks about hope versus the way that we talk about hope. You and I, when we talk about hope, what we mean is that this is something that we desire to have happen. I hope the Dodgers sign Clayton Kershaw. Now, when I say I hope this, it means that when I use that word hope, there's no certainty attached to it. It is simply a desire that I have, but the ultimate outcome is something that I am out of control of. It's a coin flip. It is going to be a, by random chance or by some decisions by somebody else. That is how we use hope. It is something that's totally detached from our ability to control it. But in the Old Testament, the way they used hope is that it is something that is hoped for, but it is also certain. It is hoped for, and yet it is also certain. And the reason why the Bible talks about something that is hoped for and something that is certain is because the source of hope in the Bible is in the character and the goodness of God. That is where we are to put our hope. And because God is ultimately in control and he is good and he does love us, that means that I can be confident that he will bring good about in my life even though I don't necessarily know how that can be. Biblical hope is rooted in God. It is rooted in his character and who he always has been. And let me give you an illustration of this. So, the author of Lamentations says that he has bound my sins into a yoke and he has placed them on my neck. It is such a vivid picture, but what strikes me about that is that God so rarely does this. That God in this moment lets them feel the full weight of their sin. He gives them the full consequences of their sin. He places all of their sin upon them so they get all of the punishment, but most times in our lives, God holds our sin. He so rarely gives us what we deserve. He doesn't pull the full, put the full weight of it on us. Instead, he holds it himself. 
He feels the weight of our sin. He feels the weight of the burden. And he carries it and feels the pain of it all while still keeping it all from us. Certainly we receive some natural consequences. But oftentimes, God doesn't give us what we deserve. And sometimes that's even frustrating. I mean, part of the book of Psalms is, is David saying, Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper and why do the righteous suffer? The reason why is because God chooses to hold our sin. He doesn't give it all to us, even if we don't know him and love him. At times, he withholds the full consequences of our sin. He doesn't give us all that we deserve. Ezekiel 33 explains the heart of God in that. It says this, say to them, this is God saying to the prophets to tell people of Israel. This is God telling me to say it to you today. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather desire that they turn from their ways and live. God withholds the full consequences of our sin because he doesn't want to destroy us. He wants to bring us back to him. And so biblical hope isn't placed in this belief that life is going to be good, but rather that God will be good, regardless of what life may give. And that's important to know because, let's just be honest, oftentimes in life, it isn't good. It's very challenging. It is full of pain, and the Bible is completely honest about that. Look at verse 19. When he talks about his suffering, he says it in such stark terms. I remember my affliction and my wandering and the bitterness and the gall I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. I mean, it's such an honest verse. He says, I am suffering, I am bitter, I am upset, and my very soul cannot lift itself up to believe that anything good can happen again. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat our suffering. It is honest about how much we are suffering. It doesn't ask that we somehow try to take our pain and somehow bury it with more peppermint mochas or with more wrapping paper or with more Christmas carols or with more sort of holiday movies. It doesn't ask for us to fake it with our suffering. Instead, it wants us to look right at the heart of our suffering and be honest with it. More than that, he wants us to speak our suffering to God himself. In scriptures, this is called lament. This is where we tell God, this is what is happening. This is how it's affecting me. And even very specifically, in God, I don't know where you are in it. I don't know what you are doing. I mean, there's, we have verses like that all over the scripture, and yet every one of them is inspired by God himself. God invites us to speak of the suffering and pain of our lives, and rather than trying to sugarcoat it over, he says, come and bring it to me. Remember it well, Scripture says. See and feel the loss. Why? One of the things I think that Nikki picked up on this week on the Coastline Podcast, which Hunter does a brilliant job with, but Nikki said something that grabbed me. And Nikki knows, Nikki, <laughs> we talked that Nikki's had a hard life. Uh, but she says this, that when we remember our sorrow... When we really look at our sorrow, it cannot help but also reset our hope. When we look at our sorrow, it resets our hope. Why? Because when you look into what's happened, when you look at the things that have happened to you, what you also begin to see, when you remember it, when you bring it to mind, you also can't help but see all the people along the way who are with you in that journey. 
the people who helped carry that burden, the people who supported you when you felt like you had nobody left, spouses who were patient with you, children who stepped in into the gap. We fear that if we really look at our pain, if we really look at our suffering, it's going to consume us. But what ends up happening is that when we begin to really look at our, gra- at our pain, we begin to see the fingerprints of grace all around it. We begin to see the ways that God has been moving all along, and it begins to renew our hope in God. We see this happening right here in the passage. Look at verse 22. Because he begins to complain about his situation. He points out what God hasn't done. But then he begins to see the glimmers of grace. But more than that, he begins to see the grace giver in his life. Verse 22. He says, because of God's love, we are not consumed. I mean, they just said... I'm about to be consumed. That the sorrow is overwhelming. But once they begin to actually look at it, he says, you know what? I see God's love in my life and I find out that I am in fact not going to be consumed. I am still here. I am still standing. God is still with me by his love. Look at verse 23. His compassions, they never fail. They are new every morning. Look, friends, my compassion is not new every morning. My compassion runs out. My kids will tell you that there is no scarier father in the South Bay than Sean Hurley at 9 p.m. Trying to get my kids to bed is the most, Melinda's laughing so hard right now, that I am the most stressed out dad when my kids go to bed, I have to go to the bathroom. Go to bed, I didn't brush my teeth. Go to bed, now I need to think about something, mom. Like, it is like, go to bed and don't come out or I'm going to tie you to it. My compassion runs out. And we fear that because our compassion runs out. It's certainly God's compassion will run out too. But he says, your, your compassion, it never fails. Look, we've all had a friend who talks so much about a breakup that we think, I just cannot hear that person's name again. We run out of compassion, yet God never gets tired about talking to us about our suffering. He is never tired of us bringing him our heartaches and our pain. His compassion is new each day. Look at verse 24. The Lord is my portion, and so I will wait. What are you saying there when he says, the Lord is my portion? He's saying, the Lord is enough for me. Even though I have lost so much, the Lord is enough for me. And he says, I don't know when it's going to end or how it's going to end, but I know that whatever happens next, God will be enough. And so he says, and so I will wait. And more than that, look at the next phrase. He says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. That God loves it when we come to him and sit in the tension of suffering and wait for him to come and meet us. Somehow, this poem of complaint just became a worship song. I mean, I just read the passage a few minutes ago, but it has some great lines in it. He says that God has broken my teeth with gravel. He says that God has shot me full of arrows and every one of them has hit their mark. And he has this great one, which is my favorite, where he said, God was like a bear chasing me. And when I got away from him, he became a lion that tracked me down. That's just great imagery. That's great poetry there. This is who God was to him when he began, and yet once he turned his attention to God, once he put his eyes on the suffering, hope began to come alive because he was remembered, he remembered who God was. And so this hope which had been flickering and almost dead, it now is there and it's alive. Why? Because real hope, real hope is found in the middle of real pain. 
And wherever there is real pain, we're always going to find a tender God there alongside of us. Um, so I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this to you. Uh, and I came up with this one. So my kids are all pretty big right now. Um, I mean, Liam's 6'4", I think. Like, he's a giant. And yeah, I think Melinda still longs to cuddle them. She was trying to cuddle one of the kids earlier on this week, and it was like, here, son, come. Come to mother. Come and, and be nurtured by, by your loving mother. And there was a day where that worked, but it just doesn't work anymore. But I can remember when they were little, there'd be these moments where the kids would be playing, they would run, they would fall down, they would skin their knee. And in that moment, they are up and they are running for Melinda or for me, and they're diving into our arms, and we're holding them there. In the middle of the pain, we're holding them. Now, in that moment, they are no more loved by me and by Melinda than they were before the injury. They weren't. We love them as much before the injury, as during the injury, as after the injury. But what ended up happening is that the injury brought a chance for them to experience that love in a tender new way. They came close, and they experienced the fatherhood and the motherhood of us as their parents. And this is who God is. Our suffering gives us a chance to experience the love of God in a way that prosperity and blessing just don't give us. We get a chance to see it. And the author remembers this. They remember who God has been and they put their confidence in it. And so they're willing to wait for the goodness of God and the love of God to show through in this situation again. And that's how the Old Testament ends. Micah 7, 7 says this, But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I'm going to wait for God my Savior. My God will hear me. They know that the cause of their suffering is ultimately their sin. And they know that ultimately their suffering cannot end until their sin is dealt with. And they have no idea how their sin can ever be dealt with given the fact that it happens all of the time. But they trust that God is a God of love. They trust that God is a God of power. And they know that one day God will step in and he will solve this and he will bring a means for the sin to end and for the suffering to end as well. And this is why Christmas is hope fulfilled. This is why Christmas is special, because Christmas is the beginning of God's plan to solve our sin and to remove our suffering. Isaiah 9 says this about Christmas, that Jesus will be called our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace, and the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. That Jesus' reign will change everything. Yes, he's born into a manger. Yes, he's born as an infant, but he is also born as the very son of God. He is born holy, and he came and lived and died upon the cross so that he could die with our sin, bearing it forever, and bringing us into an experience of his love, and into an experience of his goodness, and an experience of his glory that no person had ever known before. That hope for nearness that the author of Lamentations had is available to everybody who now puts their faith in Jesus Christ, that he has come as our hope. And that means it doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. It doesn't matter how bad the crisis has become. It doesn't matter how alone you feel. It doesn't matter that the medicines will not work. It means that because Jesus has come, and because he is the Prince of Peace, and because his kingdom will never end, there is always hope. There is always hope. Because our hope is grounded in him. And our Savior has come. 
It is not bound up in circumstances. Our hope is not placed in your talents. Your hope is not put in your finances. Our hope is not put into tomorrow. Our hope is put in Jesus Christ, who has come and whose love has changed us and whose love is, in fact, still changing us. And so Advent is, yes, about preparation. It's about preparing ourselves for Christmas. But more than that, it's about preparing ourselves for Christ. It's preparing ourselves to come and to meet with him and to have an encounter with God. Look, although Jesus has come, everything still is not right here. There is forgiveness that has happened in our hearts. He is transforming our lives. He has made us, he has remade us in him. We were dead and now we are alive, resurrected in him, but we still live in a world that is full of pain and sorrow. It's because of this that in Advent, we live in the in-between. Earlier on this year, I read Augustine's book, City of God which is considered a classic. Augustine, uh, I think, lived around 500, 600. Hunter's smarter than me. He probably knows exactly when he lived. One of the first truly brilliant theologians. And in the book City of God, he says, people are putting their hope in the city. Or they're putting it into villages. Or they're putting it into government. But he says, truly, our hope must be put in only one place, in the New Jerusalem. That one day Jesus will come and remake all things. And until, we place, until that happens, any hope that we place here on this earth and to these other places simply will not be enough. Uh, Tim Keller said it this way. He said, conservatives will tell you that hope is found in the past. If we simply go backwards, then there's going to be hope for us to who we once were if we can become that again. And liberals will tell you that hope is found in the future, that if we can become something, well, then there can be hope again. But he says, truly, hope is only found in Jesus Christ. And hope placed anywhere else will always fail us and let us down. Look, I like you. I want more of Christmas. I love the decorations. We're going to go decorate our Christmas tree tonight. And you better believe we're going to play All I Want for Christmas is You. And I hope there's some uh, hot chocolate. Hint, hint, Melinda. Uh, I, I hope all of these things happen. I want more of Christmas. But to have more of Christmas, the way that I get there... Is not by learning to celebrate uh, one week earlier or one month earlier or by buying more scented candles or by giving more presents. It's not by leaning into the tradition more. That is not how I experience more of Christmas. Instead, it is to do what the author of Lamentations has been. Look into the dark. Look into our suffering and know that it is real. Yet Jesus has come to bring an end to that with a promised new hope for all of us. That is how we get more of Christmas, not more tradition, not cheapening in it in a way, but experiencing more of him. You know, we get a chance to do this together. If you would, would you bow your heads with me? I'm going to lead us through a, a quick prayer exercise. So I encourage you to take a deep breath. You've been listening to me talk a long time. Take a deep breath. Just kind of settle in. I want you to call to mind some of the things that have happened for, this, for you this year that broke your heart, that stretched you beyond your ability to handle, that challenged you in ways that you've never been challenged before. Remember it all. 
And tell God what that pain did to you and what it cost you. Tell God what it felt like this year to go through those things. Would you remind yourself that what you felt, God felt, that as you suffered, God suffered alongside of you? That there's nothing in this life that you have experienced that Jesus Christ did not experience as well in his flesh. Would you remind your soul of that? Maybe give thanks to God. And instead of standing at a distance, he has come so close, taking on human flesh into a, into a manger. And God, we praise you that you know what it's like to be us. And that, God, you have come here at Christmas to come and be close to us, not for a moment, for a lifetime. Thank you, God, that you are with us in the midst of the sorrow and pain. And God, we ask that you'd carry the weight of it, that, God, you would not allow it to consume us as we wait for you. Lord, renew our hope in what you can do today in us to heal the broken parts and what you promise to do in the future to heal the brokenness in the world. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.